Good morning. Our reading today is taken from the book of Esther, chapter 4, which can be found on page 412 in the Black Bibles. If you don't have one, they're in the bookcase over by the door. And again, that's Esther, chapter 4, um, and verses 12 through 17. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, And hold a fast on my behalf, and do not drink or eat for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be back here at Grace Point. And uh, Ryan uh, omitted one of the most important elements of an introduction when you're speaking in Andover, or North Andover, and that is that I'm a native Massachusetts person. I've never lived outside of Massachusetts, even though I do all this mission stuff. I'm from Arlington. I live in Lexington. So we moved like seven miles. But I studied out west, UMass and Amherst. So... um, that's my credit uh, along the line. Well, I want to start by thanking you. As Ryan already mentioned, uh, you folks at this church are partners with us financially, and I hope prayerfully. You can see our newsletter on the back. We just had our 20th anniversary as an organization, and we celebrated in Cairo, Egypt. And uh, we actually had some of our meetings in a little place called Giza, which isn't so little anymore, but Giza is where the Three Pyramids and the Sphinx is. And some of you say, wasn't it dangerous? Well, maybe, but the rates are really low because it's dangerous. So I'm just telling you, if you want to go there on vacation, uh, you might die, but it's really cheap. So it's uh, good. But uh, in the past, since I've been with you last, uh, I've been to a lot of different other places. This year, 2016, did some teaching in Myanmar, which some of you might remember is also called or has been called Burma. Uh, just in Egypt in June and in August, I had the privilege of being part of a conference for younger leaders. Uh, I was one of the older mentors in uh, Indonesia, which has the highest population of Muslims in the world. So it was quite an interesting place to have a Christian conference. We had a thousand younger leaders and 180 or so older leaders from 150 countries. And uh, amazing, I'll sort of weave in some of the stories uh, along the line there. But, and soon in October, I'll be off to Panama, Central America, and then later, right after Thanksgiving, I back to Nigeria, which has become really my second home with uh, Development Associates. Uh, this week, though, I received in the mail the uh, annual report from uh, World Relief. I don't know if you know World Relief, but it's a uh, Christian relief and development organization, actually works very heavily in the United States with refugees and refugee resettlement. 
So they're the ones most active of any Christian group that I know of, uh, working, for example, with helping Syrians uh, resettle along the line, not just here, but in Europe as well. And as I was thumbing through it, I don't usually read in your reports. I look at pictures and then put it in the recycle bin. But it starts off, it says, for such a time as this, which is a quotation from the book of Esther. But in the reading of it, I caught another phrase that really struck me in terms of my life, your life, our lives together as the church, even our lives as Christians in this nation. And it says, as they're talking about relief and development for the poorest of the poor, it says, and here's the quotation, we stand in the moment between what is and what is possible. We stand in the moment between what is and what is possible. In other words, something is a reality. It's not what we want it to be. But we stand in that moment where a decision that we make could make a difference in terms of what's possible for that moment. And that's really why I'm here this morning, to encourage each of us to think about where we stand. Where has God put us in the moment between what is and what's possible? Between the moment of of what's going on at our workplace or in our neighborhood or in our city or in our country and what's possible for our nation. See, the World Relief people were articulating their purpose behind everything they do is to basically take action and change the destiny of some people that were, in some respect, suffering. To bring hope, to bring the gospel, to bring relief. And that, in turn, gets us thinking about our own lives. What is our purpose? Uh, I do a lot of work, I mentioned, in Nigeria. And in Nigeria, almost always you'll hear at least one sermon on your destiny. And they love to use this word destiny. Now, destiny is not the same as fate. Destiny is a God-ordained purpose that you are uniquely made for. Uh, One one author picked it up when he used this phrase. He says, there's a U-shaped hole in God's kingdom. Find it and fill it. Something you are uniquely created for. The Nigerians call it destiny. We tend to call it purpose. Rick Warren grabbed the basic theme over a decade ago when he wrote the best-selling book, Purpose Driven Life. Subtitle, What on Earth Am I Here For? And I've noticed as I've traveled other books, you know, there are actually some religious books on sale in airports. None of my books are on sale at airports, so I'm not endorsing these books, but I'm just telling you they're freely available, and obviously they're selling them at airports because they think people are going to pick them up. One is called The Life You've Always Wanted by John Ortberg. Another one, Joel Olstein, Your Best Life Now. And another one, Destiny, Step Into Your Purpose by T.D. Jakes. Now again, I'm not endorsing these books. I'm just saying every human being ultimately is asking that question. What's the purpose of my life? Why am I here? What's my destiny? So today, as we think about even our role in God's greater world, represented by all these flags and many more countries beyond that, I want to introduce you to this woman of destiny, this woman Esther. She's beautiful, we know that from the scripture, but she's not rich. She's an orphan, but she rises above her disadvantaged past. 
She's exalted to a powerful place, but she's still, even in the book of Esther, never free because her, she and her people are refugees. They're living in exile in another country called Persia, or as they call it uh, today, Iran. They're exiles in a foreign land, even at the end of the book. She's not a hero and doesn't aspire to great things, but she rises up and ends up saving the Jewish people from a genocide. That flag at the very end with the Star of David wouldn't be there if Esther hadn't taken action. She's not a hero, but she saves her people. She's not instinctively courageous, but she overcomes her fears to fulfill God's purposes for her life. And an example for us. Now, I don't know if you've read the book of Esther. It's been a long time, I have to confess, since I read the whole book. It's only 10 chapters long. and actually is, is woven through like some sort of great novel or great movie. You know, there's intrigue, there's deception. I was telling Ryan, you actually, that you, I, I was put, putting some of our modern political characters in there because some of them are really, you know, there's one guy who's so egotistical when people don't bow down to him, he wants to kill them and their whole ethnic group. I'm not saying who that is but you can guess for yourself. And there's another defiant woman who just really wants to do her own thing. You know, and I'm not saying who that is. You can guess for yourself. Uh, but basically, Esther is a great story, especially the, those of you parents who are raising daughters, because she is actually one of the most featured women in the Scriptures itself. Her story begins, or her story is found in the 5th century B.C. in what we would call today Iran, then called Persia. And let me introduce you to the characters. There's King Xerxes, also known sometimes as Ahasuerus. He's a powerful and self-promoting individual who sees his kingdom is so great. In the beginning of it, in chapter 1, he actually invites people to a 180-day celebration of his military might, followed by a seven-day feast. Now, if you've ever watched the videos about the current uh, supreme leader, uh, Kim Jong-un from North Korea, you know, they're always parading by all these missiles and everything. That's exactly what this guy was like. And he wants to show everybody how powerful he is, so he invites all these military leaders in. 180-day celebration. That's half a year just to celebrate. And then, at the end of it, he has this feast. And at the feast, we introduce ourselves to the second main person, Queen Vashti. And whatever she is, she's a stunner. She's amazingly beautiful. And he has adorned her with so much bling. You know what bling is? Like a lot of gold jewelry and stuff. You know, she looked like a rapper. And, um, and so she's got all this gold jewelry and all this stuff. And he wants to show her off to all of his military friends. And she says, no. So the king is so stunned by, stunned by this that he actually consults his other leaders, his political advisors, and say, what are we going to do? If the word gets out about Vashti defying me, all the women in the land will disrespect us. And so the men are so insecure, they don't want the women to disrespect them. So what does the king do? He banishes Queen Vashti. She's never allowed in the king's presence again, and she's no longer, she's like fired as the queen. And then they go on a nationwide search, sort of America's Got Talent. Uh, they're looking for Persia's Got Beauty. And uh, they go looking for this young, beautiful Jewish orphan named, Persian name, Esther. She'd been raised by her cousin, older cousin Mordecai, who basically adopted her as his own daughter. 
And Mordecai, the Bible says, sat in the king's gate, meaning he's some sort of special advisor to Xerxes. We don't exactly know what, but he's close to the king. And Mordecai, when she's picked, when Esther's picked, she's Jewish, they're from the tribe of Benjamin, so one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And Mordecai says to Esther, when you come into the king's presence, don't tell him your ethnic background. Now that's actually true in many parts of the world today. There's actually one of the debates is whether or not people should be allowed to stay as secret Christians. Because to identify themselves as Christians in places like Afghanistan means that as soon as you give your testimony, you're killed at the end of it. So they have to ask the question of, is it okay to stay secret? And they stay, she's staying secret about her ethnic identity. And while this is all happening, Mordecai, sitting in the, in the courtyard, hears a plot from two of the king's attendants that they're going to kill the king and basically do a coup. Mordecai tells Esther, Esther tells the king, the two guys are captured and they're actually executed, and Mordecai gets written in the history books as having helped save the king's life, which will come back later in the book. Around the same time, there's this aspiring, self-centered, egotistical politician named Haman. And Haman is promoted to a place of great honor, what the Bible calls above all the princes. And when Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman, Haman's promoted, and Mordecai basically says, eh, what's up? You know, he doesn't want, everybody else is bowing down to him because he's like second to the king. Mordecai basically just, yeah, yeah, just give, and Haman is so upset about this, so upset that he's disrespected, that he decides he's not just going to get revenge on Mordecai, he's going to wipe out the Jewish people. And he constructs a plan for what we would call today a genocide. He wants to wipe out all the Jews that are in the, the kingdom of Persia. And Haman persuades King Xerxes to sign an edict to kill, quote, all of the Jews, young and old, women and little children, on a single day. Esther chapter 3, verse 13. And here's where we pick it up in Esther chapter 4. Mordecai learns of the genocidal plot. He, t- he goes and he starts fasting and and praying. Esther hears that he's sitting in sackcloth and ashes, which is a, a great symbol in that culture of, of uh, just, just total, dis, um, you know, a total sense of uh, discouragement and despair. But he can't come into the king's court because he's got this outfit on. So he hears about it and he's sending these messages back and forth like the one you heard read for us. He explains and the situation and pleads with Esther to go before the king and beg for her people's lives, verses 6 through 8 of chapter 4. But Esther reviews the rules. I don't know if you've had any encounters with political realities, but the higher you go up in politics or with kings or with rulers, the more protocol there is. Protocol is the way you have to behave. You don't just drop in. And Esther says, no, no one can drop in on the king. Uh, To do so is to invite death. If he extends his golden scepter towards you, then you're welcome. But if you just bop in and say, hey, king, what's up? You know, you could be killed right there on the spot. And I I, I learned this actually last year with Development Associates. Most of the work we do, we do with people who are, you know, the pastors in rural areas, not necessarily the powerful. But one of our former graduates in Uganda, 
She was a very uh, influential woman of dignity and respect, and she was accused in the media of doing something, and she let God defend her. She didn't defend herself. She came to the notice of the people in in politics. She was later uh, exonerated, and because of it, the first lady of Uganda, that's the flag with the, uh, the crane on it here, the first lady of Uganda called her to be her special assistant. And the first lady of Uganda is actually quite a devout Christian. And the first lady of Uganda said she wanted to take our courses. So we had this special state house cohort. And last June, a year ago June, I had a chance to go teach in a class that included the First Lady of Uganda, several members of Parliament, and I was way beyond my pay grade, you know. So before I get there, I'm actually going through protocol because I don't know any of this stuff, you know. It's not my world. And, you know, when, when the First Lady comes in, everybody stands. And you don't sit until she sits. And when she sits, you can sit. And then when you're done teaching, you sit. Me, I have to sit. And when she stands, everybody stands, and we can leave together. And, you know, I'm constantly like, you know, I called up our CEO and I said to her, Jane, I said, we've gone through the first day of class. I have not yet created an international incident. She goes, I'm glad to hear that, but there's a long week ahead of you. So, uh, but thankfully speaking, uh, the protocol was a little bit looser uh, because of our Christian uh, camaraderie together. But needless to say, it was my first experience of what Esther is talking about here. Protocol. And Mordecai basically details the horrendous consequences of her inaction. In other words, if you don't act, Esther, here's what's going to happen. You and your family's people are going to be wiped out. Maybe God will deliver us another way. But listen, inaction basically means that you're dooming everybody else. She's afraid. She sees only the obstacles. But then Mordecai calls out her destiny. It was read for us, verse 14. Who knows whether you've come into the kingdom for such a time as this? It's what we might call a crossroads moment. It's when you realize that you don't understand how you got to where you are, but you realize God has you there for that moment, for that specific time. Now let me say a word of encouragement and also something that's a little bit challenging for all of us. Esther had to stay faithful And she was faithful, and when the moment that God called her out, she did it. But a lot of the Christian life is just about faithfulness, isn't it? Is this an amen, church? Can I get an amen to that? It's just, I mean, how many of you are married more than 10 years? Can you even remember your wedding day? You know, we get married and we think it's going to be like this. I just was at a wedding, or was told about a wedding. They had fireworks at the wedding. Now, I know people 10 years married, they have fireworks, but that's a whole different story. But, you know, it's not fireworks all the time. Amen? The Christian life is faithfulness. Following God, in Esther's case, is just faithfulness. And when God showed up, she was ready. But we'll learn more about that as we go. She hears Mordecai's plea, the crossroads moment. Who knows whether you've come into the kingdom for such a time as this? Esther requests prayer and fasting from her people, and she makes her decision, verse 16. I will go to the king, even though it's illegal, and if I perish, I perish. In other words, I don't belong to myself. 
My life is not mine. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you believe, or you should believe, that you've been purchased with a price. And you're not your own anymore. That's what Esther is saying. If I perish, I perish. A quick review of the rest of the story, and then we'll get to some application for ourselves. Esther does go into Xerxes' presence, uninvited. And he sees her, welcomes her, extends the scepter so she's not killed. And then he says, what do you come here for? And she's very clever about it. She says, well, I'll tell you later. Let me come back, you know, and I'll tell you later. But she asks to have a banquet with this political aspirant, Haman, the guy who has ordered the genocide against the Jews. And Haman is conspiring in the meantime to hang Mordecai on a specially built 70-foot-high gallows so that the whole city will see his shame and Mordecai will be you know, put to shame in front of the people and Haman will be, in a sense, exalted. At the same time, if you read the story, and it's like I said, it's like a novel with plots and subplots woven through. I encourage you to read it, even read it out loud as a family. And, uh, and, and, and King Xerxes realizes at some point in this story that he hasn't appropriately honored Mordecai for saving his life from the assassination plot. So Haman doesn't know what's going on, but the, the king says, you know, how can we honor a great man? Haman, so consumed with himself, thinks he's talking about me. He says, well, I think you should make him a nice coat. You should get him all this stuff. And, you know, and, and then the king says, great, go give this to Mordecai. And Haman goes like a dog with his tail between his legs back to his house, all shamed out. And he finally shows up at the banquet with the king and the queen Esther, King Xerxes and King Esther, for a banquet. And, and Esther reveals the genocidal plot and basically calls for Haman's punishment. The king leaves the room. Haman is so afraid of being executed that he throws himself on Queen Esther begging. The king comes back in and thinks that the, king, the queen... He says, you know, not only have you done this, you're molesting my wife now? And so Haman gets hanged on the gallows he had built for Mordecai. And Mordecai gets honored and the Jews are saved. And I was going to say they live happily ever after, but if you know the history of the Jews, that's not true. But it's a huge celebration for them in a festival that you'll actually read in the book of Esther. is called Purim. But the question I have for you and me, sorry for the long introduction, but it sets the context. What can we learn from Esther and Mordecai and this scripture that helps us understand God's purposes for us so that we can discover our destiny, our individual destiny, church destiny, even as Christians in an increasingly difficult country to be a Christian. It's interesting, there's an article this week that came out from Christianity Today asking, are Christians in the United States persecuted? Because we oftentimes think about the Christians in China as being persecuted, but we're not persecuted. They have a commentary from people in communist countries where the Christians are persecuted, and they basically say, well, we're persecuted, but you folks are like dying a slow death from cancer as the erosion of your moral values of your society are basically disqualifying you, and you're going to find yourself eventually in a more hostile environment. If you want to learn about how to be Christians in a hostile environment, we need to be studying Christians in Western Europe, not necessarily Christians in California, because that's the way our country's going, and we need to brace ourselves for it. 
because it filters out the, shall we say, the, the Christianity light people. It helps us realize that indeed we are light in the midst of darkness. So what are the lessons for us? Let me give you four. For each of us, in whatever circumstances we find ourselves, we need to remember that God is in control. The theological word is God is sovereign. God is not in heaven wringing his hands over the size of Donald Trump's hands. Okay? God is not in heaven being surprised every time a new email comes up from Hillary. He's not in heaven. He's in control of things. Now you might say, what? Why is he letting this happen? But if, it, if indeed you understand God's sovereignty, Esther understood it. Mordecai understood it. Who knows God's put you here for such a time as this? And if I perish, I perish. That's someone who's relinquished themselves to the understanding that God's in control. And when we understand that God is in control, it's a source of great peace. Because he's in control and I'm not. I look at these countries and people say to me, oh, I'm sorry, I can't keep up with everything going on around the world. My brothers and sisters, it's been my profession for the last 30 years. I can't keep up with what's going on in the world. Nobody can. Because I'm not the Lord of the harvest. God is. And I need to make sure I'm submitted to him. He's in control when I'm not. He has purposes beyond my understanding. He works in the long term when I see only the short term. At the conference in Indonesia, one of the great highlights was the evening talking about the persecuted church. And we had testimonies, are you ready for this? From North Korea, from Iran. A young lady, if you saw her on the street, you'd think she was a beauty model. She's up there talking about how God sustained her during her solitary confinement for planting churches in Muslim Iran. And then Chinese pastors got up. Now, in, that, in 2010, there was a conference in uh, Cape Town, and all the government cracked down, and 250 or so Chinese pastors were forbidden to attend the conference. The Chinese government has relaxed now, and 70 Chinese younger leaders were at this meeting. And one of the pastors, who had been through prison, he had been through oppression and everything, and he's up there very joyfully just sharing the fact, you know, in, in China, there are so many Christians now he said, they can't put us in prison because they don't have enough prisons. And the Chinese government has realized every time they put us in prison, they create a new hero. And they're ending up, the Chinese government realizes they themselves have been spreading Christianity by putting Christians in prison. And I'm there listening because I'm one of the older leaders at this meeting. Everybody else is like under 40. And I'm one of the older leaders. I'm weeping because when I became a Christian in 1971, we did not know if there were any Christians in China. We didn't know whether the Chinese Communist Party and the Cultural Revolution had eradicated Christianity. Now, China has somewhere between 100 and 125 million Christians. But God works in the long term, not necessarily in the short term. During that meeting, one of the testimonies was from a fellow in North Korea. And uh, as I sat next to him, North Korea is still under a lot of oppression for Christians especially. And I leaned over to him. I said, my brother, in 10 or 20 years, that'll be your story. 
Now, I'm saying this to a guy who's probably 30 years old. So you realize how, how long 10 or 20 years feels when you're 30 years old? But that's the way God works. He's in control. When we go to, the, uh, when we go to uh, vote in November, you know, we need to realize that even in the Scriptures, the book of Isaiah refers to Cyrus, the Persian king, as God's anointed shepherd. It refers in the book of Jeremiah to Nebuchadnezzar, as God's servant. So whoever gets elected in November, it's going to be at the sovereign understanding of God, which leads to the other side of God's sovereignty. Because when we realize that God's in control, it's also a source of great confusion, isn't it? Why did God allow that person to do this to me? Why was I given this circumstance? Why did God give me this family, my looks, my wealth, this hardship, my unemployment, this handicap. Devotional writer F.B. Meyer puts it this way. God puts us where he wants us. He seeks to mold us by our circumstances, and you must believe that God has put you just where you are because your present position is the very place in the universe to make you what he wants you to become. You may be a clerk, a cook, a housemaid, but God has a whole universe to choose from, and he wanted to do his best for you. He put your soul just where it is because he knew that there you would be surrounded by the best conditions to make you what he wanted you to become in the first place. So I just want you to reflect for a moment. Maybe we just close our eyes. Think about your own life context. And pray, Lord, I don't know why I'm here in this situation and what exactly you're doing. But here I am like Esther for such a time as this. Just take a moment and breathe that. <clears throat> a second thought with respect to destiny is not only do we need to realize God's in control, but we need to realize God we need to recognize our role in fulfilling God's purposes. In other words, Esther had to make the decision to go into the king to achieve the purposes of saving the people of Israel. In other words, God wasn't doing it all by himself. It's an amazing thought that God works through us. Esther had to make the decision, rise up, go into the king's presence uninvited and reconcile herself to the fact that if I perish, I perish. In other words, God has sovereignly limited himself to do his work in the world through you and me. You can't just pray and ask God to bless New England or Andover or, or Lawrence and not take any action. God works through his people. Or another way to say it is, our prayers have feet. We need to take action and pray. Vertically pray, horizontally action. Esther goes into the king's presence. The great writer Elizabeth Elliot says, Next to the incarnation, which is God coming to earth, I know of greater, no greater mystery than this, than the that the sovereign God of the universe should ordain my participation. You are in your workplace for such a time as this. You are in your neighborhood for such a time as this. You have your family for such a time as this. 
Now, it might seem boring to you and not nearly as exciting as Esther's story, but that's what faithfulness is about, isn't it? Sticking with it. Think for a moment. What is the work of God that he's put before you that requires your participation? It might be prayer for an unsaved relative or with generosity for a person in need or in love to a neighbor from another world religion in advocacy for someone who cannot speak for themselves. What has God put in front of you for such a time as this? In Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, it reminds us that we're not saved by our good works. We're saved by grace and through faith in Jesus Christ. But in Ephesians 2, 10, the next verse says, we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand for us to do them. So it's not just a matter of being a passive, I'm going to heaven, I have a happy, sappy Christian living in my own little private bubble. If there's nobody in your world that's not a Christian, your world is too small. If you're not looking at this world as an opportunity to share the gospel, your world's too small. You know, every time you see someone with a hijab, that's the head covering on a Muslim lady, are you praying them out or are you praying them in? I can tell you what the Christian prayer is. God brought them here to hear the gospel from us. God is sovereign. And you might say, well, what if they're terrorists? Paul the Apostle was a terrorist, and look what happened to him. Let's never forget the fact that our God is over our nation. We might not be a nation submitted to God, but God is sovereign over our nation. Amen? And that's what we need to remember. That God asks us to take an action. You want to care for people in need? Care for people in need. Don't just think about it. You want to reach out to someone who's not yet a follower of Jesus Christ? Then start by befriending them. I know in, na- in neighborhoods, I don't know what it's like here in Andover or Lawrence, uh, neighborhoods are not the easiest thing to make friends in anymore. Is that true up, up there? New Englanders, we're not the friendliest people, right? I mean, after two or three years, I might know my neighbor. But even now, I live in Lexington. Everybody has automatic garage door openers. I literally have lived in the same neighborhood since 1981. There are people that I've never actually seen. I am not making this up. They have all their drapes drawn. I know there's somebody because they go out of there in a driveway in a car. Maybe it's an auto drive car. Nobody is in it. I don't know. But it has, it has the dark windows. I mean, the only way we're going to reach out to our neighbors is intentionality. Take an action. A third thing out of the book of Esther, we need to encourage each other to be courageous. Now, I know that today is going to be a day where you're going to be introduced to life communities. Is that right, Pastor Ryan? And, you know, this is the place where you are learn to be courageous together. You encourage each other to go for it. You know, God put you in that workplace. Go for it. Speak up. You know, God gave you this zeal. We have a young man, a, a man younger than me, so everybody's young now, uh, in, in my small group. And he, he wanted to run for school committee. I mean, it's not like running for Senate, but it's at least he's making part of the process, the Christian process. And I don't think we, you, he and I agree on anything politically. But I just wanted to encourage him to go for it because I want Christians to be involved in that world. We can't just wring our hands that we lost control of it when we don't even engage in it. But we need to encourage each other. Mordecai, Esther's afraid. She's possibly facing death. You know, and, and she hasn't been in, the, the Bible actually tells us she hasn't even been in to see the king in 30 days. 
So it's not like they've been hanging out on a regular basis having tea at four. And he, she says, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. But Mordecai says, go for it. God gave you this gift of this place and this time. Go for it. And she went. You know, we need to encourage each other to be courageous. Missionaries that I've visited in many parts of the world will always say, when you go back to the United States, tell them, 2 Corinthians 1, 10 and 11. And what that verse says is, God will deliver us. So people in hardship situations, God will deliver us as you help us by your prayers. We need to be encouraging each other simply by going before God. So the question is, who do you know that needs encouragement today to rise up and face some challenges before them? Maybe there's somebody you know who's thinking about going to Moldova and they're just afraid. They're just afraid. I, don't, I think I've shared this at this congregation before, but people ask me, are you ever afraid when you go? Yeah. We went to the marketplace in Egypt, in Cairo, and you know, everybody's got these gigantic robes on. You could have 50 pounds of TNT underneath it. We don't know what's going on. Or you might just be fat. We don't know. But let me tell you, I'm the kind of person who always thinks about these things. My mind is spinning. What's that guy doing over there? What's that guy, you know? I mean, maybe I'm just too observant. But if I let my fears dictate, I wouldn't even driven up here today. I wouldn't have driven up here. I remember dri driving home from Gordon Conwell Seminary one time down Route 128, and there was a car accident, and somebody obviously had been severed. You know, and I'm saying, whoa. If you think about everything that might happen, you won't do anything. Right? Well, I don't want to go to sleep. I might die in my sleep. Well, okay. You know, at some point in time, you have to realize that God's in control. But who do you know that needs some encouragement today to face the challenges before them? And finally, we need to realize that God has a purpose for us bigger than our comfort. Let me repeat that because I'm speaking as Americans to Americans. We need to realize that God has purposes for us bigger than our comfort. I was telling somebody that in America we have a trinity. The American trinity? Comfort, convenience, and consumerism. We want it to be easy, we want it to be fast, and we want it to be more. And as Christians, we're working in a different value system that basically says my life is not my own. I belong to Jesus. To live as Christ, to die as gain, Paul wrote. No one lives for himself, no one dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. This is not just something for Christian missionaries. This is for every Christian. And I'm not, most of us are not going to be called by God to go and die, literally. But to take the risk to start talking to that Muslim co-worker, that might be involving a little bit of self-death. You know, to take the risk of learning about another world religion so you can talk to your Hindu neighbor, that's going to be some sacrifice. And Esther had to realize that God's purposes were bigger than her comfort. You can envision in that kind of a kingdom, she was a very comfortable lady as the queen. But she risked it all to do God's purposes. This past year, in March, I was in Myanmar. 
Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but Myanmar, Burma, has a deep connection to New England. The first North American white missionary left from uh, Salem, Massachusetts, and ended up in Myanmar. He was the first Christian missionary to that Buddhist country, then called Burma. Anybody know his name? Adoniram Judson. Now, you might not know Adoniram Judson, but you might know somebody who started a missionary training school named A.J. Gordon, named after Adoniram Judson. Listen to this radical approach. This is Adoniram Judson writing to his future father-in-law, asking for his daughter's hand in marriage. I have now to ask, sir, whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and suffering of a missionary life, whether you can consent to the dangers of the ocean, the fatal influence of the southern climate of Asia, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps even death. Now, for those of you who are not yet married, this is not a good engagement letter, okay? But it just gives you that sort of if I perish, I perish attitude that were the missionaries that brought the gospel to many of these countries. He says, he goes on to explain his perspective. Can you consent to all this, sir, for the sake of him, Jesus, who left his heavenly throne and died for her and for you, for the sake of the perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamation of praise which shall redound to her Savior from the heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? And the amazing story about Nancy Judson is everything Judson predicted happened to her, and she would actually die there, as would his second wife, as would second, seven of his children, as would his third wife, as would Judson himself. And by the time Judson died in the early 1850s, there was scarcely more Christians than there were people who had died on his team. If you looked at it from a human vantage point, it was a total waste. He went and perished there, died anonymously, buried at sea, wrapped in a sailcloth, thrown overboard. Nobody even knows where it happened. But he did one thing beyond sharing the gospel with a few. He translated the Bible into the Burmese language. And today, 2016, there are more than 2 million Christians in Burma who trace their spiritual heritage to Adoniram Judson. Because Adoniram Judson knew that God was sovereign, that God invited his participation, that God would give him the courage he needed to face incredible obstacles, and that God would use his actions, Judson's, for God's ultimate purposes. But he lived his life as an obedient servant, valuing God's purposes more than his own comfort. My challenge to you this morning is to look through this idea of Esther's story and ask yourself, where has God put me? What is the action for this time? And am I willing to ask him for the courage to take action? Let's pray. Only you know, Lord, the challenges that each individual, family, household, even this church faces. I ask, Lord, that you would meet them where they are, that you would reassure them of your sovereign control, and that you would give them the courage, like Esther, to move forward 
in spite of the risks. In Jesus' name, amen.